Gnosticism is such a fragmentary and suggestive patchwork of texts, hearsay, myth, and rumor that you can label almost any contemporary phenomenon Gnostic and get away with it. Existentialism, William S. Burroughs, Jungian psychology, Marxism, Thomas Pinchon, psychedelics, American religion, the European banking elite, even the Sex Pistols, all have been saddled at one time or another with the Gnostic name. I admit that by teasing out the Gnostic threads from the webwork of technoculture, I am perhaps only making a further mess of things, and it seems best to remind the listener that we are dealing with psychological patterns and archetypal echoes, not some secret lore handed down through the ages. For this reason, I will reserve the capital G term Gnostic for those religious groups and texts of antiquity that most scholars recognize as such. One of the most essential Gnostic characteristics was a hardcore Platonism that amplified the otherworldliness of the old Greek metaphysician into a severe dualism that pitted the spirit against flesh and the world. Taking the widespread human intuition that something is amiss to new levels of cosmic crankiness, the Gnostics insisted that life on our heavy ball of sex and death was not just an unmitigated disaster, it was a cosmic trap. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, May 16th, 2016 and this evening we have the pleasure and honor of sharing 42 Minutes with Eric Davis, author, podcaster, award-winning journalist and popular speaker based in San Francisco. He is the author of four books, but is perhaps best known for his 1989 book, Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information, which is a title really similar to another book that we're all fairly familiar with. Technosis has recently been republished by North Atlantic. More information about his work, podcast, Expanding Mind, can be found at his website, technosis.com. Most recently, he earned his Ph.D. in religious studies from Rice, or maybe you're just a candidate for a Ph.D. from Rice University, which quite possibly means that you've worked closely and directly with our friend Dr. Jeffrey Kripal. It truly is an honor to be hosting him tonight. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing great, and I did just uh, get my Ph.D. In fact, just this last weekend, I uh, walked the walk and... uh, um, n- none other than Jeffrey Kripal uh, hooded me, which means putting this strange medieval object over my head in front of hundreds of other people who were getting hooded. And it was actually a rather uh, rather fun, uh, interesting ceremonial time. Yeah, and so it's interesting because there is uh, a ceremony that still is current, you know. So th- there's all these different things and they have meaning and it seems like it could be occult and strange and uh bizarre but uh nonetheless it goes on every year no absolutely no for me it was actually kind of meaningful uh, because i don't i don't tend to do a lot of ceremonial things i don't do a lot of stuff inside kind of conventional institutions and it was already a, a big move for me to go into you know an academic situation and to go through that process uh, and so the, the ceremony at the end was kind of interesting because on the one hand, it's just, you know, it doesn't maybe mean that much or it's just a step in a lot of people's careers as they go on and, you know, make money and go to business school or whatever. But 
for me uh, to have that connection, particularly with with uh, Jeff Kripal, because his advisor, you know, he was my advisor, and his advisor was Wendy Doniger at the University of Chicago, and her advisor was Mircea Eliadi. And so in some sense, to get hooded by Kripal was to sort of be part of this transmission. And, and that was in some ways part of our relationship was the sense that there's a kind of way of thinking about religion, about consciousness, about experience, about myth, about patterns of culture uh, that, you know, we're all doing in our own way. But in some sense, there's a kind of continuity of concerns that goes back to, to Eliotti, who was really a towering figure, still very worth wrestling with, even if he's uh, very unpopular in many parts of uh, of academia today. So it was pretty satisfying on that level, too. But it seems like to me, uh, who I kind of got interested in this stuff more in the early 2000s, you coming out of the, the latter half of the 90s, it seems like there, was all, there were all these towering figures that have since... Uh, They've since passed on since then, but I'm thinking of like Terrence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson. You know, it seems like you had a personal connection with some of these folks. Yeah, I would say that, that was. I mean, I got to meet both of those guys, uh, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, only briefly, um, but it was uh, it was memorable nonetheless. Uh, and I saw him, you know, do a lot of talks and workshops and things like that. Uh, and then Terrence, I was more of uh, 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 friends with, at least towards towards the end of his life, or really more kind of col- friendly colleagues rather than I was not a close friend of his. But we spent a lot of time together, and definitely like to uh, to shoot the shit. Uh, so I like to think of myself as kind of you know having one foot in an underground world of thought, uh, and then another foot in a slightly more uh, I wouldn't say mainstream, but more visible kind of world of journalism and now uh, scholarship. Well, I'm really shocked that I somehow missed this book, and I don't know how that is even possible because uh, it seems like it contains all the stuff that I was interested in, um, and then the the closest thing that I could find that really captured my uh, uh, my attention was uh, James Glick's The Information. But your book was like 10 years earlier, and then it also had the occult side of it, too, which is really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about how this book came to be? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it, it was interesting. It was sort of like a, a hunch, in, really, on my part, uh, to, that it was worth pursuing. Um, and it grew out of studies I did at, in, in college in, in, as an undergraduate when I was at Yale, and it was sort of a con- confluence of, th- of really three threads. Uh, one was that I started to read Philip K. Dick on my own mostly, although I ended up writing my senior thesis on him, but that was really more of a personal passion, and I became completely obsessed with Phil Dick and his world and the problem of his, what kind of, did he have a religious experience, did he go crazy? the mixture of Gnosticism and technology and all this crazy California stuff. I'm from California. It kind of, it it really resonated with me really very deeply and still does. That was one thing. And the other thing was that I started to read ancient Gnostic texts. And I sort of found out about Gnosticism because one of the professors at Yale, uh, the famous Harold Bloom, 
uh, would would talk about Gnosticism as a really as a kind of existential position. He actually, you know, it wasn't just describing it as a scholar, but actually kind of embraced it in a certain sense as an answer to the problem of why is there so much suffering in the world, even as there's obviously some kind of uh, juicy, mystic yumminess uh, at, at the core of it as well. And so he talked about Gnosticism in a number of his books and, and, and Kabbalah and other Hermeticism. He was sort of an interesting, you know, and a very secular intellectual literary critic who nonetheless drew from the occult kind of material that, you know, you and I have been attracted to for, for so long. Um, so that kind of got me interested and I started to read the primary sources because they're not that long. They're kind of interesting. I, I like the I like reading biblical texts. So I was sort of familiar with ancient literature and enjoyed it um, again mostly on my own that I had though I had some support of that in classes and then the third element was really a kind of a way of thinking intellectually and philosophically about technology and the problem of technology uh, and and how do we think about it and particularly ideas of uh, of simulation and the simulacra there was a you know very famous French a uh, uh, theoretician in the 80s and 90s who was very popular, Jean Baudrillard, who is now, you know, perhaps less cited. Uh, he's sort of dated in a way. Uh, but he was he was really full on. He was saying, no, reality is over. It's all about simulation now. There's no there's no co- there's no copies anymore. It's just everything is just a model of something that doesn't actually exist. And we've shifted into this new world that's sort of no longer real. It's hyper real and kind of that crazy French overthinking in a way. Uh, but it, it was very sci-fi, you know, it really, it really triggered that kind of science fictional sort of bleak existential, but also fascinated, um, attempt to really look at technology as something that was not just adding to human capacity or changing human culture, but was in some sense transforming the very fabric of what reality was or feels like or acts as part of human experience. Uh, And so these three things, a kind of ancient impulse that there was something profound within Gnosticism, this kind of heretical response to the kinds kinds of moments we see with with Christianity or with Judaism, but something more, more paranoid, more critical, more strange, and then triangulating that with contemporary ideas about technology, how it's changing consciousness, how it's changing culture, how it's changing politics. And then that really all refracted through through Philip K. Dick's work. Uh, and that really kind of got me going. And I just kept uh, following that, those connections. And then as I became a, I became a journalist after I got my uh, bachelor's degree, I decided not to go to graduate school at that point. And I went to New York and I started writing for The Village Voice, which was a wonderful place to write cultural criticism, right? I wrote about rock music and TV and subcultures and drugs and technology and virtual reality. I really was able to write about all these wonderful things and everything as I went through the years and and was tracking things, I was always fascinated by this point where technology and mysticism overlapped. So I just kept kind of collecting those moments, whether they were in the past, whether they were in pop culture, whether they were in uh, tech, technological discourse or the ideas that people had about the future, science fiction. I just kind of kept co- collecting those things until it was enough material to make a book. 
and it really, you know, it just worked. It was kind of crazy at the time. It didn't feel like a very sensible thing to write about. Um, uh, but it, you know, it's really, it's in the long run, it really paid off. I mean, they just reissued it again last year after, you know, nearly 20 years. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it sticks around. There's some, there's some, uh, set of, of kind of archetypal patterns, like you quoted that it, that it, it struck, uh, that still resonate with people, even if the facts have changed so much. If you think about it seems like you you preceded the matrix for sure but those all those three threads you cite are, are kind of this the threads that they're exploring too philip k Absolutely. dick yeah technology and then the french uh that that whole idea of uh similaracra um yeah it's just it it kind of blows my mind um but Speaking of Philip K. Dick, where did you end up? Did you decide that it was a religious experience, or did it matter? Well, uh, probably a little bit more on the on the, the second half. I actually uh, uh, one of the chapters of my dissertation, which is called "High Weirdness: Visionary Experience in the '70s Counterculture." One of my chapters is about Dick, and a lot of what I'm talking about is how, particularly at that time, though I think it's still true today, but in a way, something started to emerge out of the counterculture that's still with us, which is that people begin to have experiences that, whether they're caused by psychedelic drugs or, in the case of Dick, his own peculiar um, brain, nervous system, mind, uh, that people are having these experiences that, in some ways, look a lot like religious experiences or they, they smell like religious experiences. They taste like religious experiences. But in other ways, they're not really quite religious, at least in the traditional sense of what we mean by that, which is, of course, a long story. What do we mean by religion? But leaving that aside, that tricky question, um, what I'm really interested in is how people start to negotiate and construct a new way of having extraordinary experiences that in some ways draws from religion but in other ways tries to do something different. Uh, so I see him as someone who's sort of, in a way, wants a religious experience and is trying to kind of build his own unique uh, nervous system events into these religious experiences. And he kind of succeeds in some ways and he constantly fails in other ways. And what you get is a kind of, I don't want to say postmodern because it's sort of a, a, a useless term in some ways, but you get a different kind of religious experience, one that's not rooted in some sense of dogma or some sense of certainty. Like, I spoke, God spoke to me, and now I know that the end of the world will be in two and a half years, and you must follow me, and that kind of stuff. He, he didn't get that. He couldn't pull that off. Uh, instead, it was a much more reflexive, almost like a kind of feedback loop where his own ideas and his experiences and then his interpretations, they kept circling through in some ways in a very agonizing way, but in other ways in a very creative and very interesting way where religious experience becomes part of a larger flow of ideas and concepts and criticism and scientific ideas and different philosophies, different, different religious traditions. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in precisely how it both, you know, kind of eludes religious experience in the traditional sense, but it's not just purely making it up or 
a crazy event or a purely neurological thing. I don't think there is such a thing as redu- you can't really reduce things like this just to the brain. It's it's more complicated than that. Uh, so I really want to trace that and, and play with uh, the way in which religious experiences has changed for us today. Which which one is your favorite Philip K. Dick work, or can you say that you have one? I can't say that I have one because I I change, and even when when people ask me like what's the best, what the one they should read, I try to like it's almost like a kind of oracle where I kind of go into my intuition and feel like for you, <laughs> for you, three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge, but for you, a scanner darkly, right. you know, and it's it's almost some <laughs> unspoken. Uh, dimension of of the person and what they're what they're questing, what they're questing on about. But you know, I would put those two pretty high on on the list as well as Vallis. I had a kind of a Philip K. Dick moment when I was reading your book, where there was an anachronism. I'm like, wait a minute, this book came out in '98. What is it doing quoting or uh, mentioning Mad Men? And I just thought, okay, reality's not real. This book's not real. <laughs> Do you know what part I'm talking about in your book? I do. I do. That was a that, there was a few tricky things I did at, when I when I reissued the book. I read through it again, and I was just going to fix tiny little mistakes. And I realized that, that that it was really sort of larded with '90s pop culture references. <laughs> and I realized that for younger people coming to it, even if they were like super smart and up on things, there was just a lot of stuff that wasn't going to help. And in a way. It was kind of cool at the time because I was a pop culture guy and the 90s are an interesting period. So I ended up taking a lot of stuff out and occasionally, and I only did it a few times, I dropped in anachronisms like that. And in, in, in retrospect, it was kind of a little stupid. I should have figured out ways to like avoid doing that. But in some ways, I couldn't really avoid it. So it was, there were a few weird like time shift problems uh, that, that do come up. It's funny. I was just reading – there's there's a there's an anachronism like that about Philip K. Dick in uh, in these uh, diaries of of Jacques Vallée from the 70s, and I was reading an online post about it, and the guy made like a whole bunch out of it. He was like, then on this page when he's talking about Phil Dick, he does he, there's this anachronism. Was this prophecy? Was he seeing into the future? And I was like, and I was like, oh no, I did the same thing. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's a, there's a couple of those, uh, but I do I do I'm quite well well aware of where that is in that sure. book. Yeah, I've been. I'm, it's really it's strange. I've been um, really slowly watching Man in the High Castle. I think it's an Amazon show. Have you seen that? I did. I I saw, I just I just I put it off for a long time, and I saw the first one, and it kind of annoyed me. And then I said, nah, enough people have said they. They liked it that I decided to watch it, and I think it's worthwhile, but kind of more on its own terms than as yeah. a sort of particular Phil Dick vision. Yeah, it, using the Phil Dick pitch as kind of a launching point to explore similar themes and ideas, but not necessarily the same. Yeah. So with Philip K. Dick's Gnosticism in mind, then you run across a character like Norbert Wiener, who is playing with something kind of similar, but totally different at the same time. Well, one, one of the things that I wanted to do was, you know, in that quote that you had at the beginning of the, of the podcast, uh, there's an element about Gnosticism that really has to do with the rejection of, of matter and the idea that the, the, you know, the juice lies in, in the soul and the spirit in the, 
um, in the uh, pleromas, they, they sometimes called it the sort of the transcendent God beyond God. Uh, and a real sense of like, you know, outside of the world of matter, outside of the, 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 the physical world was, was where the action was. And I just sort of noticed that there was something strange as we, as we entered into the so-called, you know, information age, as information became something, became a kind of stuff, but it wasn't really a very material kind of stuff, at least from some perspectives. And that as people started to think in terms of information in the most general sense, that there was this strange kind of recapitulation or a sort of uh, mythological return towards the split between matter and spirit. And I was like, oh, that, no, that can't really be because it's science. They're just talking about data in a very concrete way. And they're, you know, drawing diagrams of how computers learn or, you know, how, how, my, how you know, human nervous systems and technological systems share feedback loops of information and, and uh, uh, learning and responsiveness. And, and, but the more I looked, the more I, I really came to the conclusion that at least on the sort of psychological level, on the level where we, we you know, every, every story that we take, even the most rational stories, the most hard-edged scientific descriptions of reality, once those are things that we kind of take on as ways to live or as ways to understand the world, they tend to take on these sort of more mythological, psychological, and in some cases spiritual and religious overtones, even if we think we're just doing science or just being rational people. Uh, and I saw this over and over again, and, and the, the more I started to look for it, then the, I, the more... Uh, examples of these kinds of issues uh, that I found. And Norbert Wiener also in other ways very freely drew from religion and religious ideas. You know, he drew from the idea of the golem uh, in Jewish Kabbalah, the sort of idea of creating a creature that you kind of control but then kind of goes off on its own and does its thing, which is, you know, different than the Gnostic idea. But it's related to that same sort of occult, hermetic, uh, you know, stream that runs through Western history um, that in some ways technology and science and especially really cutting edge ideas uh, really come out of. And so I think in, in a lot of ways, both consciously and unconsciously, a lot of technologists and scientists were, were weirdly treading on these older kind of more mythic or, or, or even sort of mystical uh, uh, territories. It's interesting how the transcendent spirituality of the, oh, what was it, like 2012 moment, how that really began to play nice with kind of the, the information age of the idea of the singularity. It seemed like there was this, this moment where we thought we could really upload our consciousness and be rid of our bodies altogether. And it was really strange how it seemed like it was these two different factions that somehow uh, were on to the same idea. But I don't. It's it's mo it's strange because that moment has kind of passed, and I don't know that I feel that same intensity anymore. No, I don't think so. I think I think uh, in a lot of ways these stories worked better uh, when there was still a sense of kind of, I mean, I, I just think that the, the, the reality of matter, the reality of the earth, the reality of our limitations, of violence, of 
the environmental crisis of overpop. You know, the, the, there's a sense of kind of uh, the material limits of things that hold that keep some of these more expansive. Uh, mystical features a little bit, uh, you know, more in check maybe than they used to be. I mean, at the same time, it's when you, when societies begin to break down that you also see kind of millennialism and and crazy apocalyptic ideas. And I'm sure we're not done with these kinds of ideas, uh, whether they, you know, manifest themselves in, in cults or, you know, you know, cult suicides or crazy things like like that, but I, I, it does seem that it's going to be, I think, a, a, on the one hand, probably a, a little while before we see something as um, widespread uh, as 2012. That said, uh, you know, who knows what it's going to feel like when we have virtual reality and augmented reality, you know, integrated into our ordinary experience of the world and the kinds of you know, ways that we know that individuals can get into, let's say, gaming worlds or, or, you know, multiplayer online games or whatever, the different ways that people can already start to live multiple, multiple lives in, in some sense, multiple worlds. When, pe- when more of that is generalized uh, and there's artificial intelligences or at least apparently artificial intelligences that are making decisions in society, that there's going to be a lot of room for a lot of weird stuff. So I don't think we're done with the consequences of these things. But but 2012 was a unique um, moment where a singulitarian kind of uh, techno-futuristic discourse overlapped with this strange, archaic, uh, apocalyptic idea that, that Terrence McKenna and his, you know, alternately brilliant and peculiar way was able to kind of generate in, in, in a lot of ways. And I think that, I mean, I've kind of always had a problem with that kind of brand of Gnosticism that really devalues the flesh. And I think this is one of the reasons why Jeffrey Kripal's work spoke so loudly to me, because his is a real embodied spirituality. So the the more ensouled you are the more embodied you are on some level and I, I really that that kind of is the the direction that this show took to explore the idea of a really embodied spirituality yeah i i agree with that very much i mean my own my own spiritual life has involved a lot of uh a lot of meditation but a lot of my meditation has been very very uh, embodied it's very much about my body and very much about perception. And I feel like in many ways, um, now that I've been, you know, doing this stuff for decades, the way that it, the way that its fruits manifest is not in some idea about the afterlife or the higher realms or some, you know, really special occult experiences. I mean, I've had some things like that, but those, that's not really what stays with me where I really feel sort of sprightly in the world is just being an embodied being having perceptual experiences and interfacing with things and people and places and weather and smells and animals and uh my own changing body and so it's i you know even though i'm i've been fascinated by by gnosticism and and particularly about the kind of conspiratorial side of gnosticism the idea that 
the world you know isn't the real world and in fact they're pulling one over on you. That kind of extra twist which is really there in ancient Gnosticism. I mean, we think about conspiracy theory as being kind of a contemporary mode, uh, and in many ways it, it, it is related to the problems of modernity in, over the last couple hundred years um, in, its, you know, in the form that we're familiar with. But if you go back and you look at ancient Gnostic texts, they really are saying like, yeah, that guy, uh, you, know, that, you know the Jewish uh, books, you know, Genesis with Yahweh walking in the garden and all that? That guy's a poser. He's a false god. Right. The real god is beyond him. And, you know, they're, they're, they're taking these positions when there's other people in, this, in the scene who would have those beliefs. And so they, they probably came off kind of as, you know, conspiracy theory kooks who had some kind of secret knowledge. And then you get the secret knowledge and then you know. And we see those same patterns with conspiracy theory today. In fact, you can really look at a lot of conspiracy theory in these Gnostic frameworks because if you – if you find out, like now you know, you know, you figured it out, like, oh, actually 9-11 was run by the, the lizard kings from you know, Orion, you know, and you're like, and you get the information and then you know, you, meaning gnosis, you know, you know what's really going on. Nobody else really recognizes it. So in a way, you're privileged because you know something, but nobody else really recognizes it because they're all deluded. They're all sort of stuck in this false reality. And so that psychological space, whatever the reality or the truth of the situation, leave that, leaving that aside, that psychological space is very Gnostic uh, in, in a lot of ways. But if you make this move that you're talking about where you go, yeah, I don't know about this Gnostic antibody thing, like, you know, I think we got to move through the body and be in the world and be in physical matter and deal with animals and, you know, our snot and food and the weather and the environmental issues and all that stuff that comes up, uh, you know, I think it's it's also a, a it's a it's a good way to avoid some of the traps uh, that exist psychologically and, and spiritually in the in the kind of information age. It's funny you mentioned nine eleven because that definitely is one of the entry points for a lot of people into these realms. But what's interesting, uh, and what a lot of me and my colleagues found was. There are a lot of strange, what would be high weirdness, all around that day, and all you know. So you, it's it's like, well, why are, are all these significant, meaningful numbers all over, right? You know, uh, what whatever, whatever, like nine eleven, and then flight ninety three, and you just start you go down the rabbit hole into these different uh, numerological meanings, and you get to synchronicity, you know. So instead of um, what a lot of us found was instead of like a bunch of bad guys running the show, maybe the universe is running the show in a certain way where we're seeing the architecture of the universe and that one of the fundamental forces is that we don't necessarily understand yet is synchronicity. And so, and that that is a big one for someone like Philip K. Dick where synchronicity is one of these forces through his books. I'm, I'm curious if you have, what's your relationship to synchronicity? Well, I mean, I've certainly uh, uh, been interested in it and cultivated in some sense. I mean, I think we, we all have the capacity to, to recognize the, uh, if we want to call them synchronicities, the, the events, the, the sort of happenstance events, the serendipitous uh, conjunctions that occur in our lives all the time. And that part of what it means to start being someone who thinks about synchronicity is that you just start to recognize and remember them or name them. 
and you have a place in your memory to hide them. I think I think most people have marvel, mildly marvelous experiences all the time, but we don't really have a place to put them. So we're like, oh, whatever. I don't, uh, you know. So you literally just there's nowhere to to pin them, and they just disappear. Um, and I think that part of what be, you know becoming aware of synchronicity means is that you start to tune your perception differently. You start to notice different kinds of patterns, and it seems very clear to me that once you start doing that, that there's the thing, ta- the process takes on a life of its own. Where that life comes from, I'm still puzzled by. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that any, I think to, that to have synchronicity be part of your path, whether it's an intellectual path or a spiritual path or both or whatever, uh, to be, to take that on, you, you have to, um, accept it as a, a bit of a trickster, that the, that the synchronicity effect is mythologically, if we were thinking of all the kind of different archetypal figures you might stumble across, you know, the, the hero and the goddess and the witch or whatever, that the synchronicity takes you in a trickster direction. And so when you're dealing with the trickster, that means you got to stay on your feet. That means you got to keep thinking. It means you got to not quite buy it entirely even as you sort of have to take on the consequences to some degree of what these things uh, look like. Um, And I think it's just the case that if you start to look at certain things, you're going to find both anomalies and synchronicities. Um, I had one wonderful, uh, you know, modest synchronicity uh, with, with Phil Dick, actually, that was sort of doubled in some ways because Dick himself... Uh, you know, was a huge fan of the I Ching, and that's where the the term synchronicity really enters into popular consciousness. When you know Jung starts to say, "Well, how would something like the I Ching work? How would you actually have an oracle where a throw of coins or yarrow sticks would actually tell you anything?" Well, here's this idea, you know, and the idea itself isn't that solid when you look at it rationally, but it sits in a good place as a kind of interface between a, a lot of different ways of looking at at reality. So let's go with it. And Dick goes with it. Um, and then he, he reproduces in a lot of his books. A lot of his books have kind of magical books in them that act a little bit like the I Ching. And a lot of times uh, people open them to any page or they read them randomly. And there's this idea of kind of random access, which you can do with books. And of course, this was a kind of oracle that people used in the ancient world. They would use the Bible or sometimes they would use Virgil uh, and they would have a question, and they would open it to any page, uh, and then what they would read would be sort of the message from from God or the beyond. Um, there's a very famous pa- part of uh, Augustine's uh, Confessions, you know, the great uh, sort of intellectual of the of the the early church. He had been a Manichaean. He wasn't always a Christian. And part of his conversion occurred when he opened up the book to any page and he asked a question. He got an answer. So there's this kind of sense of the living book, the book that responds, that speaks through randomness. So there I am. and I'm about to give my first public lecture ever. I've done hundreds of lectures since then. I, I love to give lectures and I don't usually write out very much. And I hadn't written out everything for this first lecture, which was about Gnosticism and Philip K. Dick. And I'm at the New York Open Center. It's like 1989, 1990. And the crowd is filling up and I'm nervous. And then I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be talking about Gnosticism, but I don't have a good, I I didn't come up with a definition. I didn't really, 
I did, I'm not, I, I am not helping people understand what it is if they don't know what it is. So I picked up a, the copy of Vallis, the paperback copy that I had with me, and I opened it. And the first place that my eyes fell was Gnosticism is the belief that <laughs> the, the, the God of this world is a false God. I mean, it was just a perfect, like, two-sentence definition. Uh, so that kind of, you know, I've had enough of those wink-winks yeah. uh, to always, you know, I keep the door is open on the, on the synchronicity machine. But at the same time, I have a lot of respect for it the way one should have respect for, you know, whatever, a, 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 a ferocious drug or a... Um, a very stimulating madman who lives, you know, you meet in the cafe on occasion. I mean, it's a, uh, it's it, it it needs to be handled uh, well if you can, you know. And then, and I've seen people get swallowed up by synchronicity, and and clearly, it's also a part of psychosis. And I do think that psychosis, the word psychosis, describes something in reality. It's maybe not as hard and fast as some people want to be able to say the difference between psychosis and vision or creativity or whatever. It's, it's very complicated issues, but I think we, sh- we do need to say that there's something like psychosis. And clearly synchronicity also plays, can play a very powerful role, not only in characterizing those, exper- those experiences, but driving them. Like you start to notice things and then you kind of notice too much. And it's really, you kind of boil it down to like, the idea that everything is connected can, from one perspective, be an absolute, you know, um, beautiful cosmic sense of oneness. It's all connected. And a terribly claustrophobic, paranoid, terrifying, hellish sense that it's all connected. I don't want to be my grandma. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so that's a, that to me is fascinating right there, you know, that it has that, that it has that edge. But I've always been drawn to tricksters and to those kind of somewhat mischievous, even somewhat dark playfulness around things. You know, I think this is very much in Robert Anton Wilson and whatever. And I believe that if you go and look at thing at historical events, particularly more recently, if you look at 9-11 and any a number of other things, but that's a great example. You are going to find things like this. And if you say you, you're not finding them, you're not, you're not standing up to, you know, what your experience is. What that means, I, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, I accept a lot of skeptical descriptions of how pattern recognition works, about how statistics work, not as a way to shut off these things, but to recognize that it's very hard to really say what the bottom line is. And in some sense, we're kind of entering into, you know, a world next door, this sort of parallel reality. You, you mentioned the word rabbit hole. I love that, you know, metaphor. I love that notion of going down the rabbit hole because we've all experienced it. And the Internet helps. You know, you want to go on a rabbit hole hunt, man, go at it. You know, it's there. It's waiting for you. <laughs> and, and you won't be the same coming out on the, on the other side. You might not know anymore, but you won't be the same. Here's an interesting synchronicity rabbit hole, and then the details have gotten fuzzy. But when I when I checked out your Led Zeppelin four book, you were talking about so Led Zeppelin a lot. They're singing a lot about Lord of the Rings, and then they, I think you were talking about maybe one of Jimmy Page's girlfriends who eventually got with Steven Tyler, right? And then Liv Tyler ends up being 
one of the elves that they're singing about. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't made that loop, man. And the way That's a the good way one. you wrote it, though, it just seemed like it was so bizarre. How there's almost this strange connection through time that. Uh, it, it it I don't know maybe it, that's the the hard part about synchronicity sometimes when they're so crystal crystal clear in your mind and you think oh my gosh that connection's so there and then you say it out loud and you just sound crazy. No, that that's part of the the trick because it's 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 something about what's happening inside you, but it's not just happening inside you, and that's the sort of interface. You know that's what makes it interesting, even informationally. Like it's not just about a psychological connection that's just meaningful for you, if it's really a robust synchronicity, it's also about something that's happening in the world, but you're still experiencing it subjectively, even as you're trying to build knowledge based on it as kind of an objective fact. It's, it's just a, tr- it's a tricky creature. And, w- and then when you get into the, the time slip part of it, then everything gets really crazy. I mean, I know a lot of people are, are seem to be very confident in being able to talk about how we know that time isn't the way it is because you can see X and Y and they feel really comfortable sort of theorizing at that kind of level. And I usually just kind of go, whoa, that's just, I got to stop somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I don't think time is, is, is a simple matter uh, by any means. I've had too many weird experiences of my, of my, on my own. But um, it's also the, the question of the weird experience, even the weird synchronicity, even the one that seems to tell you something about the world. It's also a question about, well, what do you, what do you do a half an hour later or the morning after or next week? Like, uh, are we called upon to hold on, you know, to that profound sense that something really significant is happening or is recognized? Or do we realize that that too is is an experience that comes and goes like happiness, like despair, like suicidal thought, like, like the madness of love, you know, that there's a way in which we go through all of these states that give us glimpses of things. Um, but sometimes we get in trouble when we hold on too tightly to the, uh, the kind of residue of these experiences that might be happening on other levels beyond the specific content. You know, and I say that I don't entirely believe it because I know what's that there there are really concrete elements when you look at something like nine eleven or when you look at any number of occult conspiracies or all the things Robert Anton Wilson, you know, wrote about that there's something more. It's hard. It doesn't quite. You can't quite deconstruct it as just a projection or anything. Uh, and I don't know what to do with that 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 excess that surplus. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm both fascinated and somewhat wary of it. Well, that was 42 minutes, and thank you for sharing it with us. But before we we sign off, um, tell us uh, what we can expect from you in the nearest future, and then a, a little bit about what sample the microgram is. Well, what I'm doing, I'm I'm, I'm writing, turning my dissertation into a book, and that will come out hopefully not too terribly long. Sometimes university publishing can be crazy, and it's it's a scholarly book, but it's also a, a chock full of high weirdness. Uh, and I write about uh, Terrence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson as well as Philip K. Dick, and so I'm really trying to get into that weird '70s zeitgeist. Uh, and I can, you know, keep doing the podcast, expanding mine on Progressive Radio Network. I do that almost, almost weekly. I've been doing that for six years now, and I'm, wow. you know, keep going forward with that. And it's, uh, 
pretty satisfying. Um, and then the uh, that talk that you referred to, it's just going to happen in a week in in San Francisco. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm going to hook up with uh, uh, an LSD blotter collector named Mark McLeod, and we're going to sort of talk about the cultural history of, of LSD and uh, and the, that's the, 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 the title microgram comes from uh, uh, some issues of a government magazine that, that was uh, I think it lasted for many many years and it was inside the DEA uh, and there was this one guy I can't remember his name right now Mark Mark knew him uh, who was sort of like the, he knew everything about blotter he knew every and so every issue would be like this sort of collection of all these great acid blotters uh, but it was, you know, from the government. <laughs> so he's going to be showing some of these scans of this. It's kind of hard to find. It's pretty obscure. So it, it should be a fun, uh, a fun trip down uh, memory lane, um, especially in San Francisco. It's always fun to talk about this stuff because it's, it's kind of in the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, yeah, this should be fun. And then I'll be doing some talks at, at uh, some festivals later this summer at... Um, Beloved in in uh, Oregon, and then at Symbiosis in California in September, we'll be doing some some talks. So I always like to show up at at uh, music festivals if I can. So that should be should be a fun summer. Well, great. You've been listening to Eric Davis on Forty Two Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com. Check his website out at technosis.com, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the host. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much. And were you to diminish or add even one letter, you would destroy the entire universe. Ready? One. You will do this four times with the left, four with the right, then eight times with both.
Left.